today, we got to have a little taste of heaven. And it, it reminded me of my mom and my daughter. They're always singing in the house. And whatever worship songs were sung on Sunday or Wednesday, it carries over into their week. So if you find yourself tomorrow stressed out, you know, inject some worship, put that into your uh, Bluetooth device, start singing, you know, you're the God of the hills and valleys, Uh, start putting your perspective on worship and you'll find that injection works the same at your house as it does here at 885 East Vista Way. It's the same injection, it's the same Holy Spirit, right? Um, I wanted to read a couple lines from that song from Torn Wells. It says, Father, you give and take away every joy and every pain. Through it all, you will remain over it all. On the mountains, I'll bow my life and in the valley, I will lift my eyes. When I'm standing on the mountain, I didn't get there on my own. When I'm walking through the valley, I know I'm not alone. You're the God of the hills and the valleys. And it has this little riff like hills and valleys. It's kind of catchy. Um, it's pretty awesome. So we can sing throughout the week and inject the spirit into our lives. I wanted to pray for those of us that couldn't be here to, today, maybe the online crew, so that they know they're not alone. So let's just pray for the uh, people that are listening from a distance. Jesus, we pray for those that can't join us and maybe they're aching because they might feel alone. Maybe they feel um, discouraged because they can't get in their car to come. Uh, maybe they're going through something or they're worried or they have just a reason they just can't be here, but they want to hear from you. And I pray that spirit of Jesus would minister to them the same. The Holy Spirit is no different in a house from church. And while fellowship is so sweet, we just pray for the the sweetness of the word to pierce their heart right now, wherever they're at. And we pray for the time now that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen right there too. Um, uh, so my name was Carrie right here. You probably couldn't read it. I forgot to say my name earlier. Um, I'm thankful to be able to be here and give you guys some, uh, encouragement and some announcements, but I'm going to turn it over to my friend, Murr. She's going to teach us Romans today. Um, she is awesome. She gives you Jesus. She's very transparent and humble and just wants to be genuine. Um, she has a little worksheet. Um, so if you didn't get one, make sure you grab one at the table or maybe the ladies are going to pass one out. Um, it's really useful because she's got a lot of wisdom on there. And you can tell she spent some time with Jesus because she's going to give you Jesus. So without further ado, Merster, my friend Merster, let's welcome her up. <laughs> Thank you, friend. You're awesome. She do this more often. What's up? You did a great job. You're welcome. She told me she was nervous, but I don't feel like that translated, right? No. Yes. So give me a second to uh, get this situated. Okay. Um, Yes. So on the front side, you have your study guide. On the back side, you have a scripture reference. So you have your scripture if you need it to refer to it. Also, because I won't quote chapter verse every time, so you have it here with, I think, the exception of one or two verses that you get after you print it. So anyways, welcome, ladies. It's wonderful to be with you. Um, So let's see. I don't want to stab myself. Okay. Um, Let's begin. So... When I was thinking about this study, the visual that came to mind, I will have the sound ministry put up our first slide. 
This is what I thought of when I thought about Romans. We have a bowl of chili. And I realized last time I was up here, I talked about Colossians. I I put up baklava. So I don't know what it is with Bible study and food, but that's what I relate it to. So why chili, right? Why chili? Because it takes hours to simmer and Romans is so meaty with the word, right? And also because Romans gets up in your chili, so does Paul. He gets up in there and I'm going to too. So that is why we have chili because it gets up in your peace and your business. So with that, Lord, we just quickly again give you this morning. And Lord, we look to you. I love the worship. It was just so spot on, Lord, with all that you're saying and doing and the word that you have. Lord, I decrease, Lord, and I give you increase. We magnify you this morning. Bless your women. Bless your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So... As you gals already know, just a tiny little recap here. So one of the major purposes of Romans was to clearly articulate the gospel and to bring in new converts. Paul states in chapter one, raise your hand too if you need a study guide. Anybody need study guides? One, don't be shy. Raise it high, girl. No shame. Anybody else? Okay. So Paul states in chapter one that he is eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. And of course, Paul also wanted to encourage the believers already residing in Rome. After all, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, as is recorded in Romans 11. But secondly, Paul sought to win over the small minority of Jews living there. These godly ambitions seemed pretty straightforward, right? But what makes Paul's mission so fascinating in Rome is the cultural lens from which we ought to be looking. And here's what I mean. The gospel message would fly in the face of Jewish tradition. It would be considered radical and even criminal to some. The concept of grace through faith may seem very similar to us today because we've been saturated with this doctrine, especially if we've been around church and especially the Calvary Chapel movement long enough. We're familiar with this topic, so it doesn't always ping our hearts the way it did then. But for Paul and his audience, grace through faith was anything but familiar. The gospel ruffled feathers, it upset cultural norms, and it disturbed the balance of power and governments. And frankly, it was risky business, even deadly, as Paul would attest to as a previous opponent to the way and later as a martyr for his faith. And today's passage, Romans chapter 4, beautifully illustrates through the life of Abraham what chapters 2 and 3 lays out theologically. So let's begin. I will be reading out of the NLT version. Uh, I read through a few, quite a few translations, and I love the NLT for its simplicity. So you are welcome to change to that version if you're doing it on a phone. Um, I'll be reading that if you want to track along. However, pick the version you're comfortable with and sit back in and let the word of God richly soak your souls. Let's pick up in verse one. Abraham was speaking, humanly speaking, the father of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scripture tells us, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. 
When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. So Romans chapter 4 is chock full with the various forms of the word righteous. So let's begin there. What is righteousness? Well, the Greek definition in our text means equity of character or act. So if it means equity, thanks, Sean, you're awesome. Sorry, side note. Uh, What is equity then? I looked it up online, and this is the definition that uh, I found. Equity is justice according to natural law or right, specifically freedom from bias or favoritism. In the Bible, we see several forms of righteousness illustrated. Let's begin with the first one, and this is going to be point number one on your study guide. God's perfect righteousness. Your fill-in-the-blank is perfect. That's his holiness, his perfection, his absolute standard. It's impossible to attain this righteousness on our own. But in today's text, we see another form of righteousness displayed. Check out verse 2 for texture. Speaking of Abraham, verse 2 says, If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. This brings us to point number two on your study. Comparative. Man's comparative righteousness. Man's comparative righteousness. It's when we hold up the actions of ourselves or the actions of others to determine our own standing, our own righteousness. But man's comparative righteousness doesn't hold up as a viable option for salvation. And that's because the standard for righteousness isn't held up against man, right? It's measured against God, the standard of perfection. This is why Abraham could not serve as an example for the Jews to boast in. As awesome as Abraham was, our patriarch was flawed, just like the rest of us. This is why the claim, well, I'm a good person, or he's a good person, she's a good person, uh, they should go to heaven, I should go to heaven, doesn't work. We can't boast in our good works, because the measuring rod, once again, isn't man, it's God's perfect righteousness. And we all fall short. It's also the reason why one can't make the argument, well, there are just too many hypocrites in the church. Therefore, I have an excuse not to follow God, right? But what did Jesus say? In Matthew 4, he says, follow me. He didn't say follow man. Follow that Christian, that person. No, he said, follow me. Because he's the standard we look at, not man. Thus, our works, even at our best, could never measure up. But conversely, our works, even at our worst, can never keep us out of heaven if we've believed in the one whom he has sent. Notice with with me verse 5 of our text. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. So Paul dismantles the argument that faith is by works. Next, 
he moves on to dispel the idea that faith is, is by rites or ritual. Skip down to verse 10. But how did this happen? Was he, speaking of Abraham, counted as righteous only after he was circumcised? Or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous even before he was circumcised. So we see God had already accepted Abraham. He declared him to be righteous without works and without ritual. How? By faith, yes. But faith in what? Or better yet, in whom? Skip over to the very last verse of your chapter. It's verse 25. And if you don't want to skip, that's fine. I'm just going to read it to you anyways. But that's where I'm pulling from. Let the last verse in our chapter, verse 25, it states, speaking of Jesus, he was handed over to die because of our sins and he was raised to life to make us right with God. That's the gospel message all tied up in a bow. That's also called imputed righteousness. Our third example of righteousness and point number three on your study guide, imputed, imputed righteousness to make us right. So this next little section I got from, this little summary I got from a study I did in the summer and it just beautifully encapsulates, encapsulates um, these thoughts. I'll read it to you. Just listen. It says, if perfect righteousness discourages us because we can't measure up to God's standard, and if comparative righteousness deceives us because man's standards are not accurate and inadequate, then imputed righteousness defines us and declares us innocent before all accusers. We are justified in the eyes of God because of our faith in Jesus, right? Justified, as you've heard many times, just as if I've never sinned. But more on that in a bit, we're going to circle back around. So to recap briefly, if you look on your study guide, part two, um, Paul argues that salvation is number one, by faith, not works. Number two, by faith, not ritual or rites, circumcision, for example. And finally, by faith and not by the law. So go back with me to verse 13 of your text. Or just listen. Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. So in a nutshell, the Jews believed that because they received this special revelation of the Mosaic law, that's the, the Ten Commandments in the first five books of the Bible called the Torah, that this blessing somehow equated to their justification or their special standing before God. But Paul busts that misconception wide open. As you saw in your homework, the law was given 430 years after, right? Later. So Abraham was justified before the law was even instituted. He was justified, as our text says, by a right relationship with God that comes by faith. I heard a pastor on K-Wave, Pastor Philip DeCourcy, put it this way. 
He says, don't give up the high priest for the Levitical priest. Don't give up Christ for Moses. Don't neglect so great a salvation. Amen? Amen. Neither do we want to fall in any form of the shadows of Judaism or some other modern day example of legalism in our lives. And here's where I want to shift gears and really dig in. I'm going to get up in your chili, but you're going to get up in mine too. Okay? It's going to go both ways. So I'm going to start by displaying a picture for you. Sound ministry, Angie or whoever, Jackie. This is the last one. What does this say? Burst your bubble. So full disclaimer here, I am a sinner. Now I know that doesn't shock a lot of you, but like I told Monday night, I have to say this because when I was little, not little, when I was younger, I would look at all the people on the stage and I would imagine how perfect their lives were and how they never had any problems and they're so godly and how could they ever had sin ever enter their mind and all that kind of stuff. So I put this up there as a reminder in case, like me, you have some misconception that I'm holy. No. Let me burst the bubble, right? I'm holy because he makes me holy, not because I am of myself. So I'm a sinner, therefore I struggle just like the rest of you. I just get to expose it publicly sometimes, which is fun. Kind of. Sometimes. No, but seriously, my heart is, as Carrie said, is to be transparent with you, with both the good and the bad of my life. Because I know that when I am weak... He is strong, right? His power is made perfect in weakness. So let me just lay it out for you. Last summer, I found myself in just this position of just mental annoyance and questioning over just my inability to get some areas of my life figured out. You know what I'm talking about? Where you find yourself whispering maybe like under your breath, I just can't seem to get that right. Why is this area so difficult for me to overcome? Or you find yourself in bed at night when it's alone and it's quiet and it's just that darkness. And you say to yourself or to the Lord, I'm sorry, Lord, I failed again. Lord, are you displeased with me because I'm struggling? Like you have this mental ping pong match with yourself. We are our own worst critics, amen? So as summer progressed, I noticed myself slipping into greater levels of just anxiety and questioning over my inabilities. And personality-wise, for those of you who don't know me, I tend to be more on the analytical side of things. So for instance, um, when it comes to teaching and how the Holy Spirit works in my life, is he melds his gift with my personality. And for that, I really need to understand how does doctrine really play out? Like when it says, well, walk in the Spirit. Okay, I'm walking. <laughs> but what does that mean? Like how does that translate? How does that work in my life? I need to see how theology meets reality, daily life. I would say I'm more of a Jacob in personality. I tend to have to wrestle things through with the Lord all the time, all the time. It doesn't matter how many times I wrestle. And because of that, I've also given myself freedom 
to just talk to the Lord about it and, and just be very honest and very vulnerable with him with the hard questions. So anyways, uh, the Bible study I was going through in the summer um, was at the same time driving me towards some of these questions I had to look really deeper, not just deeper, like what is at my core? What really does happen if um, I can't get these areas figured out? If I never change, what does that mean for me? You know? So before I answer that, I want to give us a little bit of scriptural context for some applicational purposes. I'm going to read to you a section about Elijah and the poor widow. And it's where Elijah has asked her to make some bread that would pretty much amount to being the ingredients of her, last, her and her son's last meal. I'll read to you, but it's in your reference for later if you need it. It's 1 Kings 17. And it says, praise you, Lord. It says, she went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. In keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. And I'm going to stop right there. Someone just needs to know in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken if he keeps his word. I don't know who needs to know that, but girlfriend, he keeps his word. We can all testify that. And if you are struggling, it's okay. But let you you know he's faithful to his word. So verse 17, sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. So she said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? That's harsh. But it's so raw and it's so honest too. We see through that text some examples of those tough questions. What do you have against me, Lord? Did you come to remind me of my sin? Are you going to kill my son? And although these questions were directed at Elijah, I believe that they're ultimately pointed at the Lord. And in one fashion or another, these were some of the questions on my heart during summer, and perhaps yours as well today, to one degree or another. So after some good back and forth with the Lord, I believe he began to slowly, over time, unravel the error of my thinking. It's not like I just came to this conclusion one day and woke up and read my Bible and bing, there it was. Sometimes he just cuts straight through and it's the light that shines and there you go. Other times it's this process of digging and praying and struggling and warring and talking to my husband and just spilling out my heart. It takes time for me. Like, I have to dig, I have to see, I have to question, I have to understand. And not that because I'm going to understand everything because his waves are beyond our ways, but I have to wrestle, I have to dig it through. And over time, doing that, I felt like if I had to sort of like encapsulate what he was basically saying to me, he was saying, Mur, you're confusing justification with sanctification, When we forget that maturing in the Lord is a process. It's not a prerequisite for his approval. When perfection isn't solely a practice pursuit, but a place of peace and rest that begins in Christ first. When we confuse justification with sanctification, our perspective of God may get misaligned. And 
Let me tell you, this is actually point number five on your study guide. Don't trip out. We did skip four. I didn't tell that Monday to Monday night until like way later, like towards the end. And I was like, oh, wow, they were probably just for a doozy. What is she doing? So yeah, we're skipping four because we're going to hit it at the end. So this is five. Your fill in the blank is justification and misaligned. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm lying. It's sanctification and misaligned sanctification and misaligned. Okay. (laughs) Good. Good. Okay. So we can develop these muddied views about his character. Are you good, God? Are you trustworthy? Or are you demanding, exacting, and unforgiving? And over time, those kinds of thoughts can worm their way in and breed uncertainty about our relationship with the Lord. What do you have against me, God? Are you displeased with me? Are you angry with me? Or is God just waiting to smack me down with a hammer? Right? When we end up, we end up heaping these burdens that we were never meant to carry, like anxiety or isolation or doubt, depression, to name a few. And practically, we get our theology all backwards, right? Even subtly, we don't realize that we're doing it. But underneath, just seething at the core, there might be this sentiment motivating our actions. Well, if I do well, I'll gain his favor. Maybe his forgiveness. Better yet, his love. Or something else. It's the idea of perfection before acceptance. And that's reversed, friend. That's reversed. Notice again verse 13 of our text. Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his decision was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. The promise came before Abraham's obedience. It came before works, rights, and the law. And it comes before our performance today. Justification must precede sanctification. Justification comes first. Sanctification comes second. This is Paul's point to the Romans and to us. Listen to verse 14. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary. And the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. Amen? Don't give me a law, I'm just going to break the thing. So as James succinctly puts into perspective, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at how many points? Just one. Just one is guilty of breaking the whole enchilada. The whole thing. So if we could do it ourselves, then there would be no need for God to make a promise in the first place. And if we could do it ourselves, There will be no reason, no need for Jesus to justify us. No reason for our Savior. And as I examined my own heart this summer, I boiled down its musings to one question. Distilled it after forever. 
if I to just boil it down to one thing, this is what I would really ask the Lord, what I did ask and did ask him. If I never change in any of these areas of struggle, Lord, do you still love me? I mean, really love me. Like, freely love me, no strings attached. None. And I'm hoping that question resonates with some of you today. But before I go any further, I am going to give this disclaimer. I'm not here trying to excuse sin. And I'm, trust me, I am not trying to brush aside obedience. I'm intentionally drawing out a distinction between the application and theology of justification and sanctification in our lives. Because I want to leave room for the chapters later on, right? These issues are going to be more ta- be tackled more thoroughly in like chapters, I think, six through eight. You'll get some in five, but really six through eight is like the creme de la creme. These issues are just expounded upon. So I say that because I'm not going to answer everything today. I say that because I want to want your appetite to come back, right? We got to go back to Bible study and get the goods. <laughs> However... We will examine one aspect of God's character before we depart to just give us a little bit of insight. I don't tease you, not tell you anything. I'll give you a little bit, right? To answer that burning heart question above about love. But first, let's build it out because it's just better that way. Pick up in verse 16 of your text. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift, and we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Someone say hallelujah right? Hallelujah. Yep. Cause that's your God. Your God calls things that are not as though they were. We're unrighteous, but Jesus made us innocent. We're guilty, but he extends forgiveness. We're unclean, but he made us spotless. God sees his son's finished work in us, his righteousness bestowed upon those who believe. Ladies, that's justification. It means I have his acceptance already without works. Listen, it means I already have his approval. Girlfriend, you don't have to work for it. He already gave it to you. Let that sink in. You don't have to work for it. He gave it to you. You're accepted in the beloved. You already have the thing. He died to give it to you and to me. Amen? Ooh. Spicy. <laughs> verse 16. Let me, come, let me bring it back. As verse 16, I'll say it again. We receive the promise whether or not we live according to the law. And yet the book of James illustrates that our lives should be marked by fruit. There should be evidence of our faith in Jesus, right? That's fair. That's a fair question. Because like, like John 14 says, because if you love him, you will obey his commands, right? That's what scripture says. But we love imperfectly. We love inconsistently, unfaithfully, and yet we're accepted entirely without hesitation. That's wild. That's justification. 
And that's Jesus. And he's the reason that God can call things like you and me that are not as though they were. This is the gospel message and it was radical then and it's radical now. And it's why Paul quoted King James, King James, wow, not quite. But that is why Paul quoted King David back in verse 7 and 8 of our text. I'll read it to you. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared, cleared, cleared of sin. It's unmerited favor. It's relentless grace. And it's what separates Christianity from all other religions. It's not man's attempt to reach God to gain salvation. It's God reaching down to man, right? So, how is all this possible? Faith. Faith in what Jesus did for you and for me on the cross. But here's the caveat. It has to be received. Look at verse 16. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift. And we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham. Glory in the highest, amen. So if faith in Jesus makes the way for salvation, then what motivates Such an extravagant promise. Why is this possible for you and for me? Enter in burning heart question. Okay? Why, Lord, do you love me when I fail so miserably? When I kick against your will and I dig my heels in defiance and I fall on my face in double-mindedness? Why is this possible? Because I don't deserve your love. I don't. I'm a wretched woman. I'm sinful. Right? Like Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? No surprise here. I'm just like Paul. Maybe some of you are too. So a couple weeks ago, I was explaining some of my initial thoughts on what I wanted to share out of Romans 4 with my husband. And I told him about that burning heart question. If I never change in any of these areas of weakness, Lord, do you still love me? Really love me? Freely love me? No strings attached. And as I settled into bed that very night, I want to tell you what I read. I didn't. I wasn't looking for it. I just opened my Bible, and this is what I read. It's out of Hosea. Hosea 11, if you need it, and 14. I led them... With cords of human kindness, with ties of love, I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. I will heal their waywardness, and check this out, and love them freely. Exactly, love them freely. Like verbatim, he took the words in my mouth and pointed me right to the scripture that said the very same thing. That's a God thing. That's a God thing. For my anger has turned away from them. I needed that. And I still need it. I need it every day. Do you still need that? Do you need to hear that today? Do you think that God is angry with you? 
Do you walk around waiting for the other shoe to drop or for the axe to fall? Do you avoid him because you think that he's indifferent toward you? Listen, the truth of the matter is God hates sin. He hates my sin and he hates your sin. But the good news is that he loves the sinner and he loves me and he sure does love you. Sin qualifies us for grace. Girlfriend, it's the entrance exam. You're not going to flunk that one. We're all going to pass. Right? We all flunked the curve. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while, when, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's next week. Better come back. But right in the middle of our ugly, our mess, and our brokenness, and whatever noun you want to put in its place, right then and right there. Because friend, he loves you. Like he heard in worship the whole way through. Didn't plan that, didn't talk to Pete. That's just the Lord preparing our hearts for his message. He loves you, he really does. And he pursues you. And the way, notice the way, the way that he pursues you is with compassion. Listen. My heart has changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. How much? Does it say some? Does it say a little bit? On occasion? Rarely? Pick a different adverb. <laughs> School's still in my thoughts. I'm sorry, I'm homeschool every day. We're doing adverbs right now. Anyway, how much? All. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am not God, or for I am God and not man. And when I read that originally, I, I thought about some of you ladies and somehow some of you haven't been loved properly by man. And I don't know all of your situations. I know some of you. I understand that's difficult. But God is not your husband. He's not your father. And that biological father, he's God. He's different. He's pure. And he's faithful and he's just, and he's true, and he's right. He's the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Dude, he's strong. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. How much more, right? Like Pete said, how much more? Worthy. Much more does he love you? I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Hosea 11, 8 through 11. So he is not like us. His ways are beyond us. But is it possible, like me, like the widow, that you've been carrying the wrong perspective of him, the wrong view? And if so, let me remind you, this is going to be point number six on your study guide. I want to remind you that God's love is attached to his faithfulness. God's love is attached to his faithfulness. After I wrote that point, I, I, I later, you know, did all everything else I do, came to bed. And this is the verse that I read in my Bible. It says, unfailing love and faithfulness make atonement for sin. 
What a beautiful confirmation of his heart toward us. And what a beautiful summation of Romans chapter 4. See, it doesn't say works, rights, or the law. It's Jesus' love and faithfulness that makes atonement for our sins. Psalm 25 puts it this way. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and unfailing love, which you have shown from long ages past. Do not remember the rebellious sins of my youth. Remember me in what? And the light of your unfailing love for you are merciful. Merciful, O Lord. I want you ladies to key in that phrase I just read that says, from long ages past. It's just like the the promise we're studying today with Abraham in our text. In verse 18 of our text, it says, Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. That was the promise given. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham, Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. And as I considered the promise that God had made to Abraham, I could not stop thinking about one thing. When God cut covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 15, we're told that a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Because see, even then, God knew that man could never keep his end of the bargain. God would go it alone because he swears by himself there's no one greater. He made a covenant that wasn't predicated upon Abraham's behavior, right? The dude was asleep. He was asleep. But God made an unconditional pledge out of his irrevocable love. So even in our ups, our downs, our struggles, he will not forsake his covenant with us. Why? Because he is faithful even when we're faithless. Let that sink in for a moment. For his unfailing love for us is powerful. The Lord's faithfulness endures It keeps going. It doesn't run out forever, according to Psalm 117. And in fact, it's funny. I had to make an insert in my notes because last night I was going to sleep. It was about 11 o'clock. I'm like, I got to get up. I got to get my my brain right. And I just couldn't go to bed without spending a little bit of time with the Lord. So I just opened my my phone to where I was in, in the Bible. And I love Psalms and Proverbs. So I opened it and it was Psalm 136. And it's the beautiful passage where it says over and over again, blah, 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 his love endures forever. Blah, 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 his love endures forever. And that's the cadence. It goes all the way through. But when I read it, I happened to be in the NLT version. That's what I've been studying out of. And it it said it this way. It says his love, his faithful love endures forever. And as I was reading through, my one verse caught my attention. Um, what, and this is not in your study, like on your reference guide. This is like last minute. But 136.23, it says, he remembered us in our weakness. His faithful love endures forever. So that, my friends, is the why to our burning heart question. He loves us freely and he does so faithfully. He loves us freely and he does it faithfully. But we're going to get more into that in chapter 8. So, you need to stay tuned.
So to summarize, we've seen that salvation is not by works, rights, or the law. And we've examined the various forms of righteousness seen in the Bible. God's perfect righteousness, man's comparative righteousness, Jesus's imputed righteousness, aka justification. So where do we go from here? Well, we go on to footsteps of faith. Let's finish up our text and see how. Let's begin in verse 20. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promised. Take that, girlfriend. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when, and when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. So Abraham brought glory to God, verse 20 says, by his faith. His faith resulted in action. Okay, his actions were his response. See, they did not justify him, his works, they just followed him. Do you see the difference? Just like they followed the saints in the hall of faith recorded in Hebrews 11, and just like they follow us today. So the fruit of our faith is our fourth and final form of righteousness. We're going to go back to point number four. We're going to call that our practical righteousness. Our practical righteousness. It's the walking out of godly attitudes and actions in our personal lives. Ephesians 4.1 says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Practical righteousness has its roots in faith and is lived out through the workings and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Or as Isaiah 37.31 says, to take root below and to bear fruit above. But again... You'll have to stick around Bible study if you want to get the goods on how that works out practically. Amen? So, that's all I have for you. I want you gals to walk away. My prayer, in fact, I'm just going to pray. Is that okay if I pray, Yvonne? Do I have a second? Okay. Um, Lord, I, I pray that your word, Father, would just go straight to where it needs to, Lord. That your word would, would run swiftly, God. And that it would make application in the days and the nights, and the weeks ahead, Lord, that you would just separate out justification and sanctification, where we get it wrong, how we're perceiving you as a result, and Lord, that you would bring us into that sweet alignment, Lord, and God, that you would remind us that you truly love us unconditionally and freely, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Ooh, that was, there was a lot of good stuff there. Okay, so we are almost out of time, which I want to have more time to respond to this. But the Lord has lead this morning. So um, I think what we will do in the few minutes that we have left is have you turn into groups of no more than four um, and, you know, be comfortable with your spacing. And I think it's just a morning to pray in truth. And 
Murr alluded to this, but I was thinking it the whole time. Um, one thing definitely the Lord had to say to us through this whole week, even through the lesson, is that he loves us. You are loved. When we went through the lesson, those of you who were able to do that, when you uh, went through Isaiah 53, you cannot read that passage of what Jesus has done for us and not see such a great demonstration of his love. And then Carrie brought, God loves you. And Pete in worship, God loves you. Myrrh, God loves you. We don't, we don't talk to each other when we're doing these things. This is the Holy Spirit weaving a truth um, and bringing it all together so that you know his heart you are loved. And if that's something that you've been struggling with or something you just maybe don't believe, um, offer that up in prayer. Maybe you've had that, the, the muddied lens of you of God and his character. And it affects how you see your life or the situations and circumstances around you. You know, Abraham, he, he probably was thinking, um, I know what you said, God, but um, I'm not seeing things happen. And um, But I love that verse, and I think in the New King James version, version, it's hope contrary to hope, he still believed. So, um, and in our study, we had that, a question, you know, what is, what's an impossible right now? What is something that seems so impossible? It's a hope contrary to hope. Um, and the Lord is saying, by faith, believe what I've spoken to you. Murr said that too. The promise is received by faith. So maybe that's something you need to want to pray about. We don't have time to go around the group and everyone tell their story about what they're going to pray about. Just get in a group of four and you bring your prayer or your request or your desire um, something the Lord's nudged or nuggeted you in um, through the lesson or what Murr taught, and just offer it up to the Lord in prayer. Amen? So let's turn real quick, and then I'll come back and, and end it for us. All righty. It's so nice to have that moment just to have an adult conversation, right? <laughs> Thank you so much for having your hearts open to the Lord. I'm sure he is just... He just loves spending time with us. He loves you guys. He was so thankful that we just showed up and crawled up on his lap, right? He, he, loved those, he loves those snuggles that we get to have with him. And I just encourage you, um, just go on out and, and keep singing, you know, you know, how much he loves you, um, whether it's the little kid song, you know, Jesus loves me, or through the hills and valleys. Just keep that shot injected in your system. And when you feel low, spend some time with Jesus. Amen. Amen. Grab your kids. Um, if they're out there, uh, if they're not out there, go get some coffee and lunch and then come back. Free child care on the house. Um, be blessed. And hopefully you'll be back because, uh, there's a lot out there. Mer got us wet with appetites, right? So have a blessed week. God bless you guys and see everybody online again soon.